on the very idea a philosophy podcast hello everyone Today, the sun is beating down on this hot, hot August day, and I am in here trying to escape from the heat, justifying my time indoors by doing, uh, you know, this podcast, so hopefully my family understands. Nah, I'm going to go outside a bit and have some fun, and uh, I'm watching a bit of hockey on the side, hockey in August, oh what an age we live in, in celebration of these times I'd like to play little game one that should ease the listener into the podcast beckoning said person into the envelope or envelope of philosophical knowledge sure to follow i will say a quote and you dear listener will be given five seconds to answer actually uh, I'll say it twice. I'll say the quote twice out of, a, you know, in a spirit of generosity. And uh, then we will get into all that other stuff. Today, uh, that other stuff being Immanuel Kant. <clears throat> okay, here we go. Here's the quote. If I am asked, what is good? My answer is that good is good. And that is the end of of the matter. Or, if I am asked, how is good to be defined? My answer is that it cannot be defined. And that is all I have to say about it. Okay, one more time. If I am asked, what is good? My answer is that good is good. And that is the end of the matter. Or, if I am asked, how is good to be defined? My answer is that it cannot be defined, and that is all I have to say about it. Okay, don't be startled here. There is no ticking time bomb. That's just me gently counting down from five to one. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, the author of that quote is G.E. Moore. And here he is saying that we cannot explain the good using any other words. It's elementary and uh, in, undefinable. Indefinable? Undefinable. Like uh, they used to say on the old Wire episodes broadcast on the HBO television box, it is what it is. Remember that line? It is what it is. If we want to know what the good is, we point to something that is good, according to G.E. Moore. Is that profound, or is that a bit of a cop-out? What do you think of Moore's definition? You be the judge. Are we good here? Yeah? Okay. On to the main of the episode. Okay. So, this is part two of the episode. Um... Now, um, some of these parts of these episodes uh, I recorded a bit again. Uh, Some of the recordings um, are some of the first recordings I made when I was trying to figure out if I wanted to do a podcast. Some of the parts you might find are a little bit stiff, maybe kind of academic sounding. (laughs) That's probably a compliment, actually. 
anyway, uh, some of them might sound a little different than some others. So yeah, don't. I'm sorry if there's any sort of strange variations in the voice or whatnot. Um, so here's where we're at. Last week, Hume was throwing into doubt the role, the a rich role for reason and logic in philosophy. Uh, he was also. Um, saying that causality was an illusion. Causality, the cause-effect relationship being the bedrock of science. Uh, and this really disturbed Immanuel Kant. It uh, awoke him from his dogmatic slumbers. And uh, uh, this part of the episode, uh, we're going to see what Kant's going to do about it when he is awoken and... Angry, awoken yeah, and ambitious, let's say. And uh, okay, so uh, please enjoy. Thank you for listening. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play some uh, uh, a clip of uh, Brian McGee and Jeffrey Warnock discussing Immanuel Kant and uh, David Hume to give a little background to what's going on. And then I'm going to play some clips of the last show at a very fast speed, just so you can get caught up on where I'm continuing from. Hope that's not too confusing. He isn't doing either of But didn't Hume realize, and can't after him, that it also created a serious problem for the natural sciences? Because scientific unrestrictedly general scientific laws yes. are also uh, propositions that are neither uh, analytic, they can't be deductively arrived at by logic, nor can they be proved from experience. Yes. Didn't they both realized that too, didn't they? There is no on-cause cause according to science. For Hume, although we may notice that some events regularly follow others, we cannot conclude that one caused the other. Kant found Hume's account of causality especially worried because it potentially swept away one of the basic foundations of science, that cause and effect. That's what science is based on. Uh, Kant has said that uh, Hume's writings awoke Kant from his dogmatic slumbers. So, Kant could get a good night's sleep. Kant said so to build a metaphysical framework to rescue rationalism from Hume's attacks. Kant very much sees the force of Hume's skepticism of causality and aims to build a rationalist framework that can respond to these challenges. Kant agrees with Hume that there is no special realm of knowledge accessible only to reason, and that we can gain knowledge independent of reason. So, he agrees with him there. So, what does he do? Where does he go on from there? How does he, you know, retain some special place for reason and logic? Nevertheless, he does not agree that all knowledge is ultimately reducible to experience, the way Hume does. Kant says that it it is possible to have a general understanding of some aspects of reality by looking at the general understanding that structures all experience. For Kant, we have filters that we see the world through, and we cannot have any experiences free of this filter, free of this structure. It's there. These are the most basic features through which we experience anything. In Kant's own words, 
Hitherto, it has been assumed that all our knowledge must conform to objects, but all attempts to extend our knowledge of objects by establishing something in regard to them a priori by means of concepts have, on this assumption, ended in failure. We must therefore make trial whether we may not have more success in the tasks of metaphysics if we suppose that objects must conform to our knowledge. Beliefs about the sensible world that we can derive from the general structure of human understanding constitutes our a priori knowledge. A priori is Latin for before the fact. Prior, a priori. In contrast, all empirical knowledge is a posteriori knowledge, which is after the fact, post, posteriori. These features of reality that we can deduce from a priori knowledge are not features of the world's objects in themselves, but rather they are features of human understanding. We throw these things onto the objects when we observe them. We can know a priori that all objects will exist in space. Space and time. Because we could not even conceive an object that exists independently of space and time. We just can't imagine it. The concepts of space and time are that basic. Kant proposed that there were 12 features of understanding in total, including unity, plurality, and totality for concept of quantity, reality, negation, and limitation for the concept of quality, inherence and subsistence, cause and effect, and community for the concept of relation, and possibility-impossibility, existence-non-existence, and necessity and contingency. That's a lot to take in. Did you notice that cause and effect made the list? Yes, the notion of cause and effect was not a helpful illusion under Kant's account, but a necessary category if humans are to have any cognition at all. Here's a little bit more of Jeffrey Warnock and Brian McGee, the great Brian McGee, talking about the cognitive apparatuses that we require in order to have any cognition at all, in order to experience the world as we do. Um, now, Kant uh, is saying, this being so, for us to be able to experience anything at all, it must be such as is apprehensible by our apparatus. 
by the apparatus we've got. Yes, yes. Now, that's not to say that nothing else can exist, but only that it can't, so to speak, exist for us, that, that we can't know it. To see the world intelligibly at all requires that our mind possess these categories. These features of our understanding are the laws of nature for Kant. In the Critique of Pure Reason, Kant aims to show the limits of what can be known by theoretical reason alone. His strategy depends on a distinction between phenomena, objects as we experience them, and noumena, objects as they exist in themselves. Phenomena and noumena. Phenomena, objects as we experience them. Noumena, objects as they exist in themselves. There is a world independent of our senses. Alas, we cannot know it. According to philosopher Nicholas Stang on Kant, the distinction between appearance and thing in itself is not a distinction between two or more objects, but a distinction between two different aspects or ways of considering one and the same object. One and the same object can be considered as it appears to us in experience or as it is in itself. Considered in the former way, the object must conform to our a priori intuitional forms. So it is in space and time. Considered in the other way, the object may not be in space and time. Because all knowledge is structured by the categories of human understanding, we must give up the idea of knowledge of things in themselves, which has always been a bit of the philosopher's dream. However, knowledge of these categories also allows us to draw a priori general knowledge of the phenomenal world and that is where I will conclude. I just want to say that although Kant saves causality, but he does so at a cost of making a distinction that leads to us giving up knowledge of the world as it is in itself. It is like most conclusions in philosophy, a bit bittersweet. Should we worry about this as philosophers, or should we, borrowing a title from the pragmatist Richard Rorty, consider the world of things in themselves as a world well lost. Thank you. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.